As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. race is on. 2021 is here and it won't be long before we hit pre-season testing and hopefully head to Australia for the first race of the season. And with rule changes, car upgrades, some big driver transfers, it's going to be far more than just part two of the 2020 season. I'm Ed Straw and joining me to look ahead to the big stories of the next 12 months are Scott Mitchell and Mark Hughes. Scott, hello, how's 2021 treating you? Yeah, yeah. Hi, Ed. Uh, Happy New Year. Um, how about those final days of December, eh? Oh, they were they were great, or and and or or they were not great. The the December ended. <laughs> well, welcome to twenty twenty one. I think there, Scott, you might be revealing a little bit that we're not strictly recording this in in twenty twenty one, but we'll we'll keep up the we'll keep up the pretense. How was your New Year's Eve, Mark? Oh, I, I loved it. I watched Jules Holland's um, Hoot Nanny, which is recorded in August, I think. So, um, yeah, I think you can see the similar theme that's going on here. The most bizarre thing about Jules Holland's Hoot Nanny is when Ron Dennis turned up on it, not performing, but just in the crowd one year. That just seemed a little bit unnerving, I found. Yeah, I think um, the, the, the performance of the B-52s was suboptimal at that uh, particular performance. Excellent choice of the B-52s. I can't see Ron Dennis at the Love Shack. 
I, I, I'm amazed. I, the the idea of Ron Dennis doing anything remotely social is con- confusing to me. As someone who sort of grew up w- seeing McLaren and Ron and those that that sort of era, being someone who, when the Grand Prix weekend finished, he was just quite neatly packaged away until having to to, to roll out for the next bit of business or, or F1 re- related. It, I can imagine seeing Ron Dennis in that capacity being a little bit like when you're when you're at school and you see like your teacher uh, in the town or, or or in a shop somewhere and it's like just such an unusual clashing environment. Yeah, a little little bit unnerving. You just sort of think he goes home and washes his gravel or whatever it is he does. I do remember actually that that, that famous story about him washing his gravel. Remember he gave the I think it was the Watkins lecture at Autosport International one year, uh, which I attended and it was you know Ron Dennis is a good a good speaker and an interesting character, but. This question about washing his gravel came up, and he said, "No, that no, that's just one of those stories about me." But then he went on to say that, in fact, he did do it once because when he got his new place, the gravel was a little bit dirty, and he realised it was quicker to get it washed than to replace it. So he, he did that. So that, while it while it's ridiculous to say he gets it sort of taken up once a month and, and cleaned, he still did do it once, which I I, I quite admire. Yeah, there's uh, plenty of good stories about about Ron Dennis and uh, not for this podcast but I'm I'm sure perhaps we'll we'll revisit it one day because he's uh, yeah an amazing story Ron Dennis and uh, and quite a character but let's get on to 2021 which is of course this year just in case anybody's confused so Mark it's well known the cars are being carried over for next year but it's not quite as straightforward as it sounds we've got upgrade tokens a couple of teams with technical partnerships that are allowed tokenless upgrades Small package of aerodynamic changes to prevent downforce levels growing beyond the capability of the tyres and the Pirellis themselves have also been tweaked in the construction. So is there enough there to shake things up? And was that Baxter the dog interrupting in the background? Yes, I'm just going to let him hang on. Well, I'm, I, I, made a, I, I made a New Year's resolution to, to be more serious on this podcast and try and contribute to a much more professional output from, from the race. And I, we've broken it with the very first bit of content that will be released in right, 2021. I'm now going to have to put Baxter on the little notes about who's a guest on the podcast, because he's already made a bigger contribution than you normally do, Scott. But uh, yeah. is, is he still within earshot? Because I was thinking if I, use, if I use the word walk repeatedly loudly, he might, he might get more agitated. <laughs> yeah, he, he definitely would. Um, yeah, he's, he's clearly, he clearly feels quite strongly about the changes for 21 because uh, he had something to say, didn't he? Because he, he sat there totally quietly before you, you, you'd started talking about that. He, anyway, sounded like, um, he sounded like an F1 driver complaining about Pirellis, to be honest. He did, yes. <laughs> same, same old bark. Um, so, yes, is there enough to shake things up? Um, yes, a little. Um, but fundamentally as in the whole competitive landscape changes like with the rule change of 2009 for example no I, I don't see that but the car because the cars are still fundamentally the same with same monocoques and a few tweaks around that as well as adaptations for the revised downforce trimming um, some are more tweaked than others and I guess the most interesting tweak will be that accompanying the racing points transition to an Aston Martin as it gets the 2020 Mercedes W11 rear suspension, which was actually probably the big single technical advance of the 2020 Mercedes over last year's car, the 2019 car. Sweeping that rear suspension back such an extreme degree by mounting the rear lower leg into the crash structure rather than the gearbox opens the rear end up to a significantly increased volume for downforce creation. Uh, we know that the Alpha Tauri won't be taking advantage of the token free upgrade available should it wish to switch to Red Bull's rear suspension. It prefers to spend its tokens on enhancing the front end of the car where it feels there are gains there to be had. 
and that's a car that's responded well to development uh, in 2019 in uh, 2020. Uh, we know that Ferrari's token spend will be concentrated on the rear end, which will include a new rear suspension. So then it's just a question of the relative cost between teams of the aero restrictions on the tapered floor and the details around the diffuser and the brake ducts. Uh, then how effective their development token spend is around the bodywork upgrades and see if any one or or if one or any of them is affected unduly by the change in traits of the new tougher Pirellis. So, yeah, there's bound to be some shuffling of the pack, but I, I don't foresee anything radical. It's that midfield pack that's probably the most prone to it, isn't it? Because we had, what, five teams covered by, from memory, I'm going to say 0.363% on average of their fastest laps, yeah, something like that. So it, yet. I think it doesn't take much to throw that bunch up in the air and they can come down in, in any order, yeah. couldn't they? Exactly. Yeah, so that that group really extends from um, Racing Point down to AlphaTauri, and uh, as as was in twenty twenty. So yeah, that encompasses four encompasses four teams. Yeah, I think it's positive that it's created a few little chaotic elements. Those, those aero tweaks—they're not massive, but there's just enough there maybe for somebody to get caught out and run into a little problem. Because one of the things Gary Anderson always says is, "No team knows a hundred percent of what makes their car good," and sometimes you can have little things in it that you don't necessarily fully understand that either work or or hidden weaknesses that, that get exposed. Now, such a small rule change, it's not that likely to expose things, but we could see a, a few little a little little tweaks. Are you eagerly anticipating it, Scott, in terms of the way things can be shaken up? At least there's enough for it not just to be a continuation. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I, I, think, I think you have to be optimistic, otherwise you sort of just end up being resigned to another year of more of the same. But the the key thing for me is that 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 there is enough there's enough changing for me to think that Red Bull could could trip up over it and you based on how 2020 ended we kind of just want to see like uh, we we kind of want to see 21 as just a part B of 2020 because it ended so promise promisingly in terms of the the Red Bull Mercedes fight so given Red Bull sort of put their misstep with the initial development or design and then subsequent development of the 2020 car down to more miscorrelation worries which seems to be a bit of a recent trend with with Red Bull and then they basically spent a big chunk of 2020 unpicking the mess of the upgrades that they brought for the start of the postponed season um and and coupled with the fact that there were some fundamental problems within that that couldn't be completely fixed it's kind of it does. It basically doesn't put. Doesn't give me a huge amount of faith that those pro- processes are basically watertight, and therefore anything that you do that's new, is it just going to go through exactly the the same process? So I, I'm a bit. I'm op, I want to be optimistic, but I am a bit cautious that between Mercedes starting prep for all these changes back in early summer, basically, and Red Bull not being particularly great at that kind of thing in recent years just makes me think that Mercedes is just going to be slightly out of reach again at the start of the year. So I guess it becomes a question, doesn't it, of how out of reach they are. I think on our post Abu Dhabi podcast, we both agreed, well, we all three of us agreed that it was more likely the Mercedes would be at the front, but there was quite a big gap at the start of 2020, wasn't there? So do you think there's at least a good chance that Red Bull will be a step closer than they were at the start of 2020? I think so. I, I think 
I, I, I don't see any reason why there'll be, I think, was it Hungary where it sort of manifested itself in the worst way in qualifying? The car just looked undrivable there. Uh, but Red Bull were basically shocked at the start of the real season um, in, in Austria in July, just how much of a step Mercedes, Mercedes had made on the car side and the engine side of so the whole package was just too far, too far ahead. Um, and obviously that prompted a lot of soul searching. And one of the problems was that Red Bull had obviously turned up to pre-season testing with this, this fundamentally damaging characteristic on the, on the car that was causing so much rear end instability that, but then they, they had an upgrade for Melbourne that wasn't used. And then I think they, they worked through, was it two or three further development iterations between then and Austria, because they were basically developing on the normal schedule as if the calendar was working how it should. Um, so then by the time they turned up to uh, Austria for the season, start of the season proper, I think there were three or four iterations of car on and it didn't work how they expected it, it, it to work. That In theory, there should be none of that this year. They, they shouldn't be as confused with where the car is. Plus they have had the opportunity, I presume with the, the token uh, the token system to be able to uh, address some of the fundamental weaknesses of the car that couldn't be done with in-season development, um, which which means that coupled with the fact that Honda's bringing an all-new engine, and when I say all-new, I don't mean from an architecture point of view. It's not like four years ago when um, the fundamental layout of the engine with the turbo comp- compressor arrangement changed, but everything's fresh basically w- within it with the internals and just lots of refinements here and there the the idea being they want to finally unleash mercedes matching power yeah all the signs are there for rebel talking up their chances this being their year yet again um i guess the sort of cynic in me or the realist sort of just feels a little bit like it kind of doesn't matter what the circumstances are we, we we've heard this quite a lot over the last few years i'm all on the topic of red bull mark Sergio Perez, how do you think he will do? Obviously, myself and Scott had a chat about him on the podcast when he was confirmed, but listeners won't have heard what, what you think. So what are you expecting from Perez? I expect him to be the, the solid backup that Red Bull need, that's um, going to be there to um, form part of the, 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 the strategy of the team that will allow them to operate as a, as a squadron, if you like, rather than just a, as a single plane against two. Um, so, yeah, he's going to be there very consistently he's not going to have any particular um crises with the car that uh, Alex Albon was having um but he'll be I would expect a good couple of tenths away in, in qualifying but um I don't think that's a bit of a particular concern to Red Bull it might be a bit of a disappointment to him um I don't know really what his expectations are going in but um yeah I I see him to be to be doing exactly the job that Red Bull need I've got to say, Mark, I'm slightly surprised you say you don't know what his expectations are. Are you familiar with F1 drivers? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but even even they sometimes have to uh, take a reality pill and um, sometimes there they, they, they does come a moment of recognition that um, there's, there's a guy who can do something that they can't. And um, I think that probably will, um, the penny will probably drop when uh, when he looks at the telemetry for the first time. Yeah, I take your point there. I think Perez will do a very good job. But that doesn't he doesn't have to be beating Verstappen or even at exactly the same level as him to do a, a very, very good job. 
Well, let's move on to Ferrari, Mark. Before Christmas, we both attended Mattia Bonotto's annual Christmas lunch, albeit virtually. He was talking up the new power units at a minimum objective of third, although he ruled out fighting for the championship. So is that objective of third possible? And how big a step forward do you think we'll see? Uh, with a follow-on wind, it's, I guess it's possible, but it's not fully in their hands, is it? It depends also on the form of the... Well, the up, the upgraded Aston Martin, the Mercedes-powered McLaren, the development curve of the Renault, etc. So, but yeah, I'd, I'd be very surprised if the Ferrari is not a whole lot more competitive than this year's car, and, and probably more consistent. But I don't foresee it breaking out of that midfield group to bridge the gap between Red Bull and the rest. So, uh, maybe a befo- better performance within that group. But I mean, who knows? Maybe he's very excited about what he's been seeing in the engine department with whatever they've come up with freed of the freeze, but still with certain restrictions in place. But it, it wasn't only the power unit where this year's Ferrari was lacking. It was a, a difficult car to put into a sweet spot too with the rear end inconsistency and the, the raft of developments that they brought from Russia onwards did improve it. So we can assume that that together with the new rear suspension they're going to do, that the car will be much better behaved as well as more powerful. But I don't see it making up the say the six tenths that was a drift of Red Bull at the last race, given that Red Bull will also be improving, and then that's what it would take to be better than third. So just to achieve third would be one hell of a feat, given the likely progress of the team formerly known as Racing Point and the others in that group. Yeah, that's the main thing. There's a lot of room for upward mobility in that midfield pack, isn't there? Because there's a strong group of teams, and every single one you look at, there's an argument as to why they'll be a good step better. That applies to Ferrari as well, but third would be a good return for them. But there's third and there's third, isn't there? We tend to think of the big three, but they'd be third, but at the front of the midfield, not in the, not in that big group. So, yeah, I think Formula One needs Ferrari to do well. They can make a big step, but the key will be will be that ultimately the the, the power unit package, and it's important for them to take a big step because, of course, you can't improve the engine upgrade the engine during the season so where it starts is going to be where it finishes in in 2021 but Scott there's also the other change at Ferrari which it also hopes will be an upgrade which is Carlos Sainz joining from McLaren so what are you expecting from him particularly up against pretty tough teammate in Charles Leclerc? Uh, Probably slightly more than I would expect from Perez up against Verstappen at, at, at Red Bull partly because I think uh, I think Leclerc in the Ferrari environment is obviously a very, very formidable prospect as a teammate, but maybe a tiny bit less than Verstappen at Red Bull, just purely because I think Red Bull over the last five years has just become so emphatically Max's team. Um, but also because I just think Carlos is a slightly higher, fractionally higher caliber of, of driver than, than than Checo. So I think I think he's um, I think he's got what it takes to go in there and. And adapt quickly to the the, the 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 unique requirements of a Ferrari driver, the the pressures that come with it, the expectation, and the the fact that while he, Carlos would never go there with this idea of having a bedding in period and sort of giving himself a few months and it, oh a few races doesn't matter if you're beaten early on, like he wants to go in there and and make an impact straight away, which which means I think he'll he'll cope well with the fact that the the Italian media the the scrutiny that Ferrari performs under means that he won't be given that 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 time if he underperforms I think he'll he'll get it in the neck pretty quickly because that's the nature of Ferrari the support is uh probably fiercer than in any other team but then so is uh, life under the magnifying glass so 
with, with all that considered, I do think that I think that signs I think that signs is up to the challenge. And while it might take a little bit of time to get properly up to speed, like grabbing that final tenth, tenth and a half out of the the machinery, because he's only going to have obviously going to have a day or so in the a twenty eighteen car, and then a day and a half of preseason testing. Um, but once he's past that, and once he starts to build a bit of momentum, I I think he's going to flourish because. Uh, well, I don't know whether it's because of sort of his background as the the unwanted Red Bull or Renault driver, or the fact that he was seen as the second driver behind Verstappen and then uh, Nico Hulkenberg. Uh, but Sainz has always felt a little bit underrated to me, sort of in the wider in the wider picture. But I actually think he's evolved into a just a truly very very good Formula One driver and. The last two years at McLaren has have been excellent, and if, yeah, I think if he performs at that level at Ferrari, then I think he's going to have an excellent season. It's interesting because he's been signed, I feel, effectively as a number two. Now, people sometimes misunderstand when you use the phrase number two. It doesn't mean that he's going to be constantly moving over for Leclerc or ignored or that kind of thing. It just means that they see him as a very, very good all-round driver who's not quite going to be at Leclerc's level, but. It's going to be interesting to see how that works out because obviously science will go in expecting to assert himself. It was interesting in that in that pre-Christmas lunch event where Bonotto was, whenever he was asked about expectations for science, he was always stressing constructors' championship, good for the team, et cetera, et cetera. Stress that they're equal status, that Leclerc doesn't have anything in his contract to make him number one. But I think there's that that unstated underlying principle that they see science as the, as the backup act but at the same time Bonotto also talks up how much science had stepped forward in, in qualifying in, in 2020 so an interesting one can you see an, an upset there Mark I guess the main question dictating how that battle will go is will be what the car's like because I feel like if it's like last year's car and a bit tricky that's going to favour Leclerc but if it's a if it's a decent car then science is going to be quite a tough teammate for him isn't it yeah I think they're, they're going to be closely enough matched that um any differences in uh, setup on a given weekend is going to sway much more than any difference between the drivers. So, um, yeah, I think there are going to be plenty of occasions when um, things get a little bit awkward on the Ferrari pit wall. And, yeah, I can quite easily see situations where um, Carlos is the faster guy on on a, on a given weekend. I don't think it'll be every weekend, but, uh, yeah, I think it will happen. And of course, he's already started work. He did attend that Christmas uh, lunch briefly as well and said hello. He spent a day at Maranello having a look round. I think Bonotto said it was it was most important on a human level to get to know people and understand a little bit of the legend of Ferrari. He said he has a, had a factory tour a bit like a tourist. So uh, yeah, first, first day for him. He'll be in a 2018 Ferrari at Fiorano sometime during January as he starts preparations, but then he's only got a day and a half in the car. But yeah, I think we've all got high hopes of, of sites. So We've got a nice, easy progression here. Working out the running order was very easy because, of course, science moving opened the door for Daniel Ricciardo at McLaren. So what do you think, Mark? Science will miss out on the switch to Mercedes propulsion. So that's that's something. But in general, it's not ideal for McLaren because they're switching to the, the stronger power unit package, but at a time when they're limited in how much they can change the car. So how big a gain can we expect for Daniel Ricciardo to exploit? Uh, maybe not an initial one at all because it's quite a it's quite a big deal switching power unit supplier even if the new one is stronger and um, these cars are incredibly optimized over many iterations to find the ultimate packaging and layout aerodynamically different architecture different heat rejection numbers different plumbing routes and you really are starting again and i'm sure if there were 
drawing a Mercedes-powered car from scratch, front to back, they wouldn't start from here, and they aren't, able, they aren't allowed to do that, but just to make a few well-defined changes in, in the adaptation. So it's a totally different architecture engine to the Renault, which has a combined compressor and turbine hanging off the back of the engine, whereas the Mercedes has a split turbo with a compressor at the front, turbine at the back. The intercooler air has to travel a very different route as a consequence. So the whole rear end packaging is totally different. That and cooling levels impact on side pod shape, rear end bodywork, incut, the shape around the base of the engine cover. The gearbox length's not going to be optimum, so there'll be some crowding there. So McLaren will make progress. They're, they're, a, they're a really good team now. Um, so they'll make progress through the season, I'm sure. But it wouldn't surprise me if it began less competitive than it did um, last year. And of course, it also means that their development tokens all have to be used to tackle that problem rather than using them to solve any other problems. They're fortunate in that probably the car fundamentally was pretty good. It was maybe a little bit critical aerodynamically in terms of quite wind sensitive, etc. But aero development is is free, so they should be able to tackle some of that. But yeah, that's great long term move but it's going to be pretty tough it was ideal for them to be changing for the first year of new regs really wasn't it but that wasn't to be with the rules being put back but scott what do you reckon about ricardo um i think he's going to i think he's going to love the mclaren environment i think he's uh i wouldn't say he cla- i don't think he clashed at, at, at renault but <clears throat> he was um i think he was i think he's much better suited to that sort of independent kind of team like uh McLaren's a bit more of I think McLaren's going to be a bit more of what he was like at Renault uh, at Red Bull sorry than, than than at Renault just because it's just slightly different than than representing a corporate entity and you know Re- Renault has some um good bits of character about it but at the same time it also uh it's just the it's just slightly stuffier than a than than a Red Bull or 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 modern McLaren and a few years ago obviously we joked about Ron Dennis at the start of the podcast a few years ago maybe McLaren wouldn't have been viewed that way um but but the what McLaren has evolved into I think you look at what sort of Carlos Sainz and, and Lando Norris had together as a relationship and what the team was able to do around that I think Ricardo is going to fit into that environment really nicely and that's 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 important it's not a it's not just a an irrelevant off track sort of side point because that relationship is obviously it comes together and it drives what you do on track and mclaren's slightly more relaxed enjoyable atmosphere has uh, has a steely side to it as well they they're fierce competitors and the progress we've seen over the last two or three years is is real and i think ricardo i think will will fit into that really really well as a brilliant motivational factor he'll he'll get the most out of the car he'll he'll raise lando norris's level um he'll be trying to bring everything he's learned from his time at red bull and renault to the team at woking as well so i i i i cannot envisage a scenario where this uh, relationship doesn't work out i'm quite interested to see how that team battle works out because norris has the advantage of being the incumbent obviously we know how good ricardo is so he's got a very very tough teammate to go up against there and it, it, it's going to be interesting to see how Norris gets on outside of that relatively comfortable relationship with Science. In that Science and Norris, although I think over the two years Science was was the the better performer overall, there wasn't a massive difference between them. So I imagine Norris is going into this thinking, "All oh, right, it'll be interesting to see just how good Ricardo is and whether he can he can live up to him and, and take that step." How do you see that battle panning out, Mark? 
Um, I think Ricardo will be uh, extreme in um, his uh, intent in, in establishing uh, dominance in a way that Carlos probably wasn't. Uh, Carlos probably just went in there doing his stuff, probably feeling confident that it would be, you know, it'd be good enough to um, uh, make him the lead performer, but probably not with a avowed in, intent of, of of making sure he was. And let's let's say, and I think. Um, Daniel doesn't operate like that. Daniel operates um, much, much more as a um, a, a ruthless sniper, and, um, and I think um, he will. I think Lando's really going to have his his hands full with Daniel. Yeah, Ricardo's a proper smiling assassin, isn't he? I don't mean that in a bad way, but you know he's a friendly character, and I think people sometimes underestimate the steel that underpins him there. So that that's going to be really interesting to see, and I think Ricardo will go in there expecting to do well but I guess the the key question Scott and we've talked about this a lot over the past year Ricardo's been asked about it endlessly will he be pleased to have moved to McLaren or will he be thinking the upward trajectory of Renault might mean that wasn't the time to jump off so that that's an extra dimension to this isn't it because his direct one of his direct opponents is going to be the team he forsook to join McLaren yeah that, that that's true but um I think Ricardo I don't think Ricardo ever moved to McLaren thinking um uh that 2021 would suddenly be a, a title challenge and the the best that um McLaren has to offer because obviously this deal was done um uh it would have been done and the, the conversations would have I'm sure started when sort of immediate big technical rule changes were, were were coming in but by the time this was done obviously um we knew that the cars were being postponed and everything was um being pushed back so I'm sure Ricardo's from the from pretty much the beginning, we would have been treating it as a longer term project than just one season. So even if the switch to Mercedes causes some complications and Renault as Alpine in its Alpine era does pick up where it left left off in 2020, there is a chance that Ricardo will be losing to his former team um, in 2021. But with so much change coming on in 2022, I I, I don't think that will um, I don't think that will give him cause to regret the decision because if you assess all of the factors in the bigger picture I do think McLaren is a better bet in the short and medium and medium term than than Renault slash Alpine yeah McLaren's certainly coming together nicely they've shored themselves up financially obviously they announced a big investment at the final race of last year in Abu Dhabi that should stabilize things and they've got new wind tunnel upgrading simulator technology improving their production facility so that they can have faster turnaround on parts. So that's a team that's trying to claw its way back to being a top team level operation. And as Andreas Seidel keeps saying, it's going to take a while, but Ricardo's got time. So it's a team that that could join that front group in the in the medium term. Let's move on to the next the next step in this this domino effect of driver moves. Renault. Now they've got Fernando Alonso. Now, Scott, he absolutely starred in the young driver test. You know, if you're going to take the young driver test by storm, you must be one for the future, mustn't you? But after Renault had a promising year, what what do you think of the chances of Alonso jumping into what will be called an Alpine this year, of course, and reviving that old magic of the mid-2000s at Enstone? Uh, um, it depends what you mean by by magic, whether you mean as so far as uh, fighting for tight wins and titles or you just mean him sort of performing it at his peak because um, I'm, I'm really excited actually to see Alonso sort of slot back into Formula One and start putting in virtuoso performances again. I, I didn't see a great deal of that in his farewell uh, season. Obviously, there were still plenty of cases of him doing a 
damn good job. But I think um, that drive to Baku in the in the properly broken McLaren was um, was a great great performance for for example. But just the machinery that he had just meant he was um, you know firing blanks a lot of the time. So uh, I, I'm really curious to see what he can do in a in a team that's on an uh, upward trajectory rather than sort of uh, stagnating or even slipping back as McLaren was. <clears throat> Uh, and I think with the amount of preparation that he's been doing, um, you can see that this is a guy who's so motivated by marginal gains and he knows what to look for and he knows where the areas are that he, he's going to need to to make sure is, is working as well as possible. Uh, so I think even with one and a half days of pre-season, I actually think Alonso is going to be um, going to have shaken off a great deal of the rust by the time we get going. And I think I think he's going to be hungry because he was initially urging Renault to sort of write off 21 and focus on 2022. But as Renault made that step change on track through the course of 2020, suddenly the, um, the short term uh, goals got higher as well. So Alonso is now simultaneously massively up for 2021 while also, you know, he wants to be, um, I, I, I believe that, you know, I, I think he was urging the team to be in the factory first thing, uh, in in the morning on 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 New Year's Day, so um, as uh, as as listeners are are hearing this, maybe Alonso is uh, busy away at, uh, at Endstone, sort of pushing uh, pushing things along. So I, I just think it's I, I think it's I think he's got everything he needs, sort of on track and off track, to sort of bring the best out of him, uh, which which makes him a, an absolutely fascinating twenty twenty one prospect. Well, I think teams aren't going to need much urging to be working on January the 1st because coming back to the rule changes for, for 2022, that's the first time since aero testing was, was suspended on that project that you're allowed to do proper wind tunnel and aero testing work and uh, proper properly work on, on that. So there's going to be a lot of 2022 stuff they're going to want to get working on to, to validate the next stages of that. So it's going to be pretty busy right now at uh, the various F1 teams. But yeah, Alonso, it's great to see him back because... I know not everybody is a big fan of him, but he's he's a wonderful driver, and you have to admire the determination and the, and the focus. Yes, I didn't like the fact he got on track in the young driver test, but that's not Renault or Alpine or Alonso's fault. They asked the question and they they got in. It's it's the regulators' fault for letting them letting them get into the young driver test. I just love the fact he leaves no stone unturned. He's really rigorous and going for it, and. I know there's always a sort of Alonso honeymoon at the start of a project when uh, when the future is bright, but this is what we want to see. And and while people will complain about the fact that they didn't go for a young driver, ultimately you've got a choice of the guys who finished what sixth or seventh, sixth and seventh in F two in Grand Ujou and Christian Ungard. Good drivers with promise, but it makes perfect sense to sign Alonso. It's going to be brilliant to see him back in action, probably for what for one last hurrah, isn't it, Mark? Yeah, I think um, I think he's going to be absolutely um, brilliant. I think he'd be at his brilliant best. Um, the, the the question I would have is um, how how is the team going to um, operate around him? They've they've just had a a great motivating uh, influence in, in in Daniel Ricciardo um, and his. He does his motivating with a much lighter touch than Fernando, um, and that that that's going to be quite a contrast for the guys working there. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they can adapt to that. I'm sure the you know the uh, the skin's thick enough to 
to to get that. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it'll it'll just be down to the the quality of the work that's done in the uh, the technical department. But I, I don't think there'll be any question at all about um, Alonso's level. It's probably the right sort of time for that team to have a driver like Alonso, who's who's really such a a powerful driving force. And yeah, there's no compromises with Alonso. He's got a certain way he likes things to be done. So if they can really work with that, then hopefully things things work. And I think Alonso's got better at that o- over the years in terms of how he how he approaches it to avoid creating a little bit of alienation. Sometimes it's exaggerated the effect he has, but. There is sometimes with Alonso and teams a bit of a with him or against him mentality that 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 grows up. So they've really got to work with him, and all the work that they've been doing so far. And he's been sat at home when he's not been at Grand Prix with his virtual garage, following the onboards, etc. It's going to be hard work for Esteban Ocon, though. That's going to be the big question. Scott, do you see Esteban Ocon beating Fernando Alonso? Doesn't look very likely, does it? I, no, I, I, I don't. Uh, but I do think the year alongside Ricardo has been really good for for, for Esteban, who. I think he had a bit more to relearn than than he thought after a year um a year on the sidelines uh and I think he had to go through quite a um uh I don't know what the right way to put it is not a rude awakening maybe that's a bit too strong but I think he did have to do a little bit of um growing up um emotionally I think if we think back to the Italian Grand Prix and his big radio rant as he crossed the finish line um I think you know he acknowledges that was the turning point uh in his season because uh it, it it forced him and Renault to confront their communication and just find a better way of working together and there was a step change after that and he did get closer to Ricardo so I I can I can see I can see Ocon being you know difficult for Alonso on Saturdays uh because I think I think Ocon's I think Ocon's capable of being very very fast um He's he's more settled in that environment, and you know he was uh, very close to Ricardo by the end of 2020, uh, much closer than he was early on. And Alonso, just you know, he's been away for a little bit. I wonder if that edge of speed has been blunted just a, just a tiny bit. So that'll be quite a close fight. I think it's on Sundays where uh, Alonso's experience and just tenacity and just all round brilliance is is going to cause Ocon more headaches. The great thing with Alonso is he's just great at getting the best out of a wide range of, of handling characteristics and adapting his style. He's so good at getting around limitations on cars. He has a driving style that often doesn't make sense in that it does rely on a, a certain amount of outrageous skill, sometimes mid-corner, to, to hang on to it. And in, my, in the hands of most drivers, that wouldn't work. But he's got this amazing ability to to carry the speed even while doing that. That's what blew Von, Van Dorn away at McLaren in that in that second year. And it's what's generally helped him against all his teammates. So I think I think Alonso is going to be a star this season, and I think Formula One's all the better for having a driver of that level. But Mark, let's move on to actually this was a domino that started it all. Sebastian Vettel at, at, at Racing Point that becomes Aston Martin, much more sensible name for the team. Good season last year for for Racing Point, third fastest car, fourth in the championship. That result was a tiny bit disappointing, but a good step. So. I guess the really big question here is whether Aston Martin can recapture the glory of the F1 team in 1959 and 60. <laughs> those, those glorious four or five races with the DBR four and five. Um, yeah, right. Roy, Roy Salvadori put it on the front row for the 59 British Grand Prix, but it faded in the race. That was it, really. It was a lovely car, but it was about three years too late. They, they'd messed about so long on the project behind the scenes that it had been overtaken by the mid-engine revolution by the time it appeared. 
Um, they just looked out the window, they'd have seen there was a revolution going on. It should have been racing Maserati 250Fs and van walls, so it had no chance against Coopers and Lotuses. Anyway, I've digressed into the era of Harold Macmillan and deposing of Batista by Castro in Cuba. I'm digressing even further, hang on. Uh, Aston Martin, right. Um, obsolescence, uh, obsolescence, that won't be the problem this time around, will it? It's It's got a Mercedes W10, W11 hybrid sort of car that should, in theory, fly. I think this year's racing point was generally underqualified, was actually probably vying with the Red Bull as the second fastest car. Um, certainly, if you if you swapped Verstappen and Perez around, if you put Verstappen and the pink Mercedes and Perez and the Red Bull a year early, I think that swing of around four tenths, I think if we assume a couple of tenths advantage to Verstappen's qualifying pace over Perez, the net swing would be four tenths between the two teams. It would have been enough to put the racing point ahead of the Red Bull at most places. And that's my concern this year. Sebastian Vettel's coming off the back of an awful season. He needs to be back to something very close to his best if we're to see the full potential of this car at every race. Lance Stroll, we know, can be super quick, but he's not someone you can yet rely on to know that that's the best the car will do. We saw that as recently as Abu Dhabi. But yeah, if the team can create with Seb the sort of working environment he needs to do his best stuff, this type of car with its benign aero should suit him far better than the Ferrari did this year. 2020 um, but there've got to be questions around the driver lineup as we head into the season hopefully they can be allayed by both of them as the season gets going and then the potential is there for a fantastic season yeah I'm, I'm a little bit wary about making two bold predictions about Vettel because once Ferrari announced they dropped him I was I was predicting a, a fine farewell season for Ferrari which turned out to be uh, extremely inaccurate as far as predictions go but that point you make about the aero characteristics that, that the Aston Martin should have they should suit Vettel and we know how quick he is when he fits in well with the car he's certainly going to be very motivated because I don't think he'd have signed up for this if he wasn't determined to continue to be a, a top line F1 driver he's certainly not the kind of guy who does it for the money should we say we, we do sometimes see drivers do this have a few extra years with a with a lesser team maybe just to, to boost the the wallet a little bit as they head into retirement but that that I don't believe is why Vettel has done it. He's got the chance to be the focal point of the team. They've brought him in also partly because of his experience with top teams like Ferrari and and Red Bull. So they'll be listening to him. I imagine that become that'll be quite a refreshing feeling for him after he's he's had a year feeling like the the outsider almost at Ferrari, a team that's really focusing on Charles Leclerc. So I think it could it could go really well, but also it could also go go badly. This this is probably the most unpredictable driver lineup in terms of how well it works isn't it Scott it could be brilliant or it could be a little bit underwhelming if if it's 2020 style Vettel that's in the car yeah I think well, I think um the the oddity is that the four-time world champion going into the team to replace the sort of journeyman pay driver with a few sporadic good results under it in his career he's the world champion that's got the pressure rather than uh He's the one that's got big big shoes to fill, which is um, which is unusual. But Perez set the bar very high. Vettel has to come in as the guy who's replaced him and at least match that, if not eclipse it. And I and I and I think that I think it's all. It's I wouldn't say it's a no win situation for Vettel this year, but it's going to have to go some to impress because I don't. I, I still don't think that Perez sort of gets the 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 credit he deserves as a driver and the quality of Perez's 2020 season was really high if if Perez hadn't had that season and Vettel came in and did exactly the same a couple of podium finishes or 
a win in shock circumstances and fourth in the championship, we'd all be saying, what an amazing job Vettel's done. Incredible team leader. He's the guy who's just transforming this team. If he doesn't finish fourth and win a race this year, he's done worse than the guy he's replaced. So it's a difficult situation for for, for Seb. And he, he, I, I think he can recapture. I think he can recapture that form and and be what Perez was, and maybe even to a slightly higher degree, certainly with a higher profile, and be the team leader and someone that sort of brings Lance up as well because he's a bit more of a statesman. He's more experienced, and I think Vettel quite likes sort of that leadership role. So it should or could work really nicely. But if Seb does get sucked into the same sort of vicious circle as he did at Ferrari and Lance isn't stepping up to the plate, then I think it could also be a, a season of, of what-ifs for, for the team. Well, Vettel at his best is better than Perez at his best, but also Vettel at his worst is a chunk worse than Perez at his worst. So that that's the the, the band you're, you're working in. But it, it's going to be important for this team to... To get it right, it's been a it's been a really difficult season for for Racing Point in 2020. There's been a lot of controversy, the whole car cloning thing, the stewards case, the brake duct design stuff. Lost both drivers at various stages of the season to to COVID. It seemed to be a team that there was a lot of negativity around because of of what happened. So they really need a good a good quiet season where they do their talking on the track. But Mark, this is an absolutely a team capable of doing this, isn't it? We've seen them overachieve consistently I'd argue they underachieved last year but it's actually really rare for this team not to over deliver isn't it so if they keep that up and the driver lineup works and battles at his best and Stroll can take a little bit more of a step and be the the sort of solid support act then there's a team that could could justify the Aston Martin name in a way that 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 original Aston Martin attempt we talked about didn't yeah absolutely it's a quality team and I think um you know, I think it's easy to underestimate just how um, how big a job it is to understand a car that you've taken on. You know, when we took the take on a facsimile of the another team's car, and certainly James Allison at Mercedes was saying, actually, I think they've done really well because operating a a car that you have no knowledge of um, why it's like it is, why why everything is designed the way it is, and understanding it, he says that's that's no. You know that doesn't just happen. He said that he was really impressed by what that team was able to extract out of it, even though it probably wasn't the ultimate. Um, so, with a year's head start on that, yeah, absolutely, I can see them being fully capable of um, really extracting a lot from it. And I think also that um, suspension upgrade is a real performance upgrade. It, it, it's it's the as we said earlier, it's the the, probably the number one reason why that uh, W11 was so much faster than W10, and that that's you know the, this car's getting that. So yeah, its its potential is there. It's 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 all it, it could if everything clicks into place, especially with with Seb as we've been talking about. It, it it's there for a, a, a fantastic season. It it's it's all there for the taking, but it has to be grabbed and it has to everything has to work. I think you make a good point there. I imagine no team has, has learned more than Racing Point over the past year, 18 months. They've been switching to a completely different concept. I remember I did an interview with, along with Gary Anderson, with Andrew Green, the technical director at, at Racing Point, of course, who was one of the one of the designers behind the Jordan 191 alongside Gary back in uh, 1990 and 91 when they were working on, on the, famous, uh, the famous 191. 
But he said that when they they had their first sort of attempt at the Mercedes clone, because they went from high rate to, to a low rate concept, they're thinking, well, where's all the front load gone? Because it, it just doesn't work that easily. You've got to understand how it all works and the interaction of the flow structure is hugely, hugely complicated. And I see people saying, well, what are they going to do in 22 when there's nothing else to copy? The amount they've learned, the fact they've learned a load about one extreme of the concept, the more Red Bull approach, higher rate that they had before, and the, the Mercedes approach, means there's a lot of aero knowledge there and a lot of understanding of the, the intricacies that I think could stand them in great stead, notwithstanding the fact they're also a really good team in their own right, even without that extra learning. So, yeah, I, th- I think it's going to be a really interesting season. And if I had to put... If the driver lineup was more secure in terms of exactly what you could expect from it, I think I'd, I'd bet, the, bet the house on Racing Point, Aston Martin. I'm going to do that a lot in the early stage of this year, calling them the wrong thing. I'd, I'd, I'd bet on them being third, but there's just that question mark over the drivers, which is going to be... Uh, be, be the challenging one. Now, Scott, also in this midfield pack, we come to a driver I don't think we've really talked about on the podcast since he was officially announced. Alpha Tauri and Yuki Tsunoda. He's made great progress in F3 and then F2 over the past couple of seasons. So how good do you think he'll be? Uh, I think he will. Uh, I think he'll be very good. Um, he, he's a driver that I'm really excited to see in uh, in Formula One, I think he's the most exciting of the Formula Two graduates. I'm expecting more from him, and excited to see what he does uh, in a way that I'm not quite as uh, over Mick Schumacher and certainly not Nikita Mazepin. So I think Sonoda's a just a fascinating prospect. He's he's one that Red Bull rates so highly because they, they, they've obviously had some. Some very good drivers in in recent years. Obviously, Pierre Gasly is now a race winner with with Alpha Tauri and 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 Sainz, as we've talked about, is going to Ferrari. So it's not like it's not like in the last half a decade, Red Bull's not produced good F one drivers. But I haven't. I don't think a driver's come in in the Red Bull pool uh, with a bit with more internal expectation and excitement than than Sonoda since Verstappen. I think I think that's the. I'm not saying that Sonoda is a Verstappen level driver. I'm not saying he'll get in and he'll do what Verstappen did. But I think in terms of what belief Red Bull has, I think Sonoda's the best thing that they've had since since Max. And he's he's just someone who's thrived in every difficult situation he's been put in. Um, so that makes him a proper Helmut Marco favourite. Just that sort of old school way of judging a driver, which isn't necessarily on their um, like development not really believing in you know a year to learn or anything like this. It's just put them in a situation and see how they get on. And if they do really well, even if you know they're not champion or, or, or whatever, then that's where you see what they're made of. So um, I think Sonoda will have a couple of years, uh, a couple of years, a couple of races, um, maybe even that first batch of flyaways, assuming that the calendar we've seen is the calendar we end up with. <laughs> um to, to to learn the ropes because you know, he's a small driver. Uh, he's he's very short. He's very young. So I don't think the sort of physicality side of things is going to be where he needs it to be. He's only going to have a day and a half in the 2021 car to get up to speed as well. So I just don't think we won't we won't see the best of him at the, at the beginning. Um, but then I think once we move into sort of the European tracks and the circus that he now is a bit more familiar with, I think that's where we'll start to see more. And so, so the expectation from Alpha Tauri is that. Sooner rather than later, during the twenty one season, Sonoda starts to make life hard for Pierre Gasly, which is um, you know, no no mean feat because as as I think we we saw plenty of times in twenty twenty, Gasly is uh, 
has elevated himself to a very, very good level of Formula One driver now. Yeah, I think it's going to be a very interesting rookie to watch. And of course, there's this this eternal question of when will Japan have an F1 driver that, that breaks through as a race winner? We've had some very good ones in the past. I did a piece actually ranking all of the Japanese drivers who've started a world championship race in December, which was quite fun. So I came out with Kobayashi as the best one. I think Sato is probably the quickest, but Kobayashi all around the best. So there's the question of can Sonoda get on top and be be the uh, the race-winning driver that Japan's been waiting for, for for so long. It's amazing it's taken this long, given how rich their their motorsport culture is is there. So, yeah, and I think Alpha Tauri as well can can take a good step. Actually, you, you mentioned the the calendar there. Obviously, we've got this intense 23-race calendar that's planned. It's It's still a little bit sketchy in terms of COVID-19 and what will happen. It's certainly going to be a season that's disrupted by the need to take uh, take precautions against COVID-19 at the, the, the most the most generous. But if we do see 23 races, Mark, how tough do you think this season's going to be? I know the half year that we had in 2020 was really challenging for the teams, intensive, but this is a this is a really intense calendar, isn't it? Particularly at the back end of the season. Yeah, it's it's a long haul um, combined combined with the intense year end. Um, but I think. I think this year is going to go down in history. Or 2020, let's say. Sorry, it's, it's, I'm, I'm forgetting it's 2021. Um, I'm, 2020 is going to go down as, as the most intense because even though it didn't start until July, it's, it's 17 races in 23 weeks. It's, it's just an incredible turnover. Um, so I think, you know, if you can get through that, you can get through 23 spread between March and uh, late November. And he... Real problems are the lack of pre-season testing. There's three days at Barcelona, start of March, I think it is, uh, scheduled for. So, Scott, do you think that's going to leave a few teams struggling come Australia, particularly the ones with new drivers, which actually, as we've talked about, is quite a lot of them, and those with, say, a new engine to adapt to? I would say that I'm um, I, I'm probably most worried about McLaren. <laughs> they, they fall into both categories. <laughs> um, I suppose the benefit that they've got there is that they're... Um, their new drivers so experienced, so I think Ricardo will will, will be relatively okay. Um, I guess it's I think it's possible that some teams will get caught out. I think um, I think quite a few. So yeah, McLaren with the change to the Mercedes engine, just you know, Mark was saying earlier just how much there is um, to to adapt to, and it, it, really critical areas as as well, reliability sensitive areas. Uh, so if they haven't got their adaptations and their calculations exactly right. It's that's going to be too late to 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 do much major major change. So so they might be carrying a weakness into the start of the season. Uh, likewise, um, you know we talked it up at the beginning as a factor why maybe you can believe in Red Bull. Honda's new engine is an opportunity for them to trip up. Um, and while on a car side, if you've got the bodywork or some part of the architecture wrong. By, and you discover that in pre-season with um, overheating or, or whatever problems, you might be able to adapt that um, or have a quick fix for Australia or one of the first races. If Honda arrives in, um, if Honda arrives in Spain for testing, and something about their new engine works differently in the real world than it did on the dyno, that is going to be too late for them to fix before they get to Melbourne. That is something that they are aware of. And is one of the risks involved because you can't upgrade the engine for performance reasons once you've sort of locked that that spec in. But obviously, they will have until Australia to 
to mess around with the engine and even after that they'll be allowed to change things for reliability reasons but the, the timing won't won't work you've only got those three days in barcelona there isn't an extra week in between to sort of try something different what you have in barcelona will determine a great deal of what you have at least for the very first phase of the season if you don't have it right i think you will be perhaps carrying that punishment quite a lot so there are you know the two honda powered teams and fall foul of that but maybe a couple of others as well if, if things aren't working the way they're meant to and as a, a final question mark because we haven't really mentioned these teams there was a very clear class c at the back of three teams williams alfa romeo and Haas last year do you see any reason for any of those three teams to take enough of a step to latch onto the back of the midfield or do you think that'll still be a discrete group at the back i think if any of them are going to do that it would be williams i think they've um got a a good solid platform in place there now, then they can um, start addressing more um, more intensely the, the the performance hotspots of their car. Um, I w- yes, I would say they, they, the other two look relatively static to me. I don't see any reason why there should be any specific um, upgraded either Alpha or Haas, but Williams, if if one of those teams is going to do, going to bridge that gap, my my sense is that it would be Williams. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with that. Obviously, there is the question of if Ferrari can make a good step with a power unit package, that could be very beneficial to Alfa Romeo and, and Haas. But yeah, Williams is probably feeling like the more upwardly mobile one with a Doralton Capital investments and yeah, a team that's at least got a foothold back at the back of the pack in 2020 so that's going to be an, an interesting uh, interesting one to follow well i think that pretty much covers our, our look ahead to 2021 there's going to be loads to talk about in the coming year and we're going to be here regularly on the race f1 podcast so make sure you're subscribed to us if you enjoy what you're listening to maybe even drop in and give us a, a review as a new year's present indeed if that is a, a real thing and in, in return we'll promise to to keep talking because you can't shut scott mitchell up as you will all well know next week we'll have a few questions i think we'll, we'll take some listener listener questions so if you you fling through some questions maybe at me on on twitter on our edge f1 let me know it's for the podcast and we'll we'll answer some of the best of them obviously plenty about the, the 2021 season but how about some of the topics we didn't touch on or or some things you'd like expanded on that we've already talked about on this episode and if nothing else hopefully we've proved there's plenty to look forward to in this new year we're looking forward to bringing you all the action so do check out the race.com and do not forget the hyphen i want another year of people not forgetting that hyphen and also take a look at our youtube channel we'll be back soon with more from the race f1 podcast